Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. For the rest of you, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah. We are going to pick up chapter 1 this morning, so you can turn to Isaiah chapter 1. I want to begin this morning with, a, with, I guess, what you call a parable. There was a father who had a son. The father was wealthy. He had given... Um, his son every opportunity to succeed, showering him with countless gifts, privileges as he grew up under his roof. He, and that little boy, when he grew up, became a young man. He, he ended up being consumed by his own desires and turned his back on his father's instruction. And one day, the father sent a messenger to his son with a, with a handwritten letter. And the messenger arrived at his son's door, read him, the note, and this note reminded the son of all that his father had taught him, all the ways that he had rejected him. It, it pointed out the consequences that would surely follow as a result of that rejection, and even detailed a way back. It was as if the young man had been handed a mirror that reflected his true self, and in this mirror he saw his broken relationship, he saw his, uh, his wasted talent, his vain life, kind of all summarized in these short Words And at first, the son was shaken. He was, uh, he was taken aback, but he soon became angry, became obstinate, and uh, turned away from the messenger, ripped up the letter, and continued down the same path that he had chosen. He continued to squander his talent. He continued to hurt those who loved him. He continued to live a life of worthless pursuits. And the father watched from afar as his son refused to heed his message. He mourned for his son and the life that he was squandering. And in the end, the father's hope for his son was not realized, and this young man continued down a path that led to destruction. This, of course, is a parable about the book of Isaiah. That's what this book uh, summarizes. The father in this story, of course, is God. The wayward son is Judah, the divided kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem, and the letter, the father's messenger, and the father's messenger, the, the, father, the letter and the father's messenger are God's prophetic word delivered by the mouth of the prophet Isaiah to this sinning nation. Remember, we said a couple of weeks ago when we began this, uh, when we did an overview of this book, that the prophets aren't just those who speak about future realities, though they certainly will do that. Um, and we'll see that Isaiah do that in this book. Um, but they're also uh, covenant enforcement mediators, which I think is a term that Gordon Fee uh, coined, and I think it's a fitting term. God's prophets didn't simply reveal previously unknown facts about future events, but they applied the revelation that God had already given in his word uh, with divinely granted insight to that particular generation in which they ministered. And that is why we see... Isaiah begin as he does in chapter 1 in verse 1. It says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Or again in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw, same idea of, of vision, seeing, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In other words, that term, vision, is loaded with this reality that God has given Isaiah divinely granted insight into the situation in which Isaiah is ministering. 
The prophets are preachers of God's covenant with his chosen people in terms, uh, including its terms, its blessings, its cursings, like all of that is included. And they are also God's mediators, the go-between, summoning them, the people, to hear, to repent, and to renew their commitment to the Lord by faith on account of his redeeming love. That's what the prophets are doing. And the book of Isaiah is... God's letter to his beloved son showing him all the ways that he had rejected him. It it showed Judah all the ways that they had squandered their spiritual privileges. It showed them all the ways they had failed to live up to their calling. And like a mirror, Isaiah's words, as we read them, as we study them, as we work through it, they're going to force God's people to stare into the face of what they had become. And it's going to make it clear to them, like a mirror, what, uh, whom they belong to, and, and even as they think about what they have wandered away from, he will give them a path back if they will take it. And even though they have wandered into the wilderness of sin, his hev- we'll see in this book, their heavenly father has made a, a path back to covenant faithfulness. He has made a way path, back to, to uh, blessing and establishment in the land, and that path was one of true repentance and faith. The choice that Isaiah presents to us as we go through this book is one of entrusting, either our, entrusting ourselves to divine promises on the one hand or trusting in human intuition on the other. Those are the only two options that are laid out. And the promises of God are either true and reliable and a a solid foundation, a rock upon which we can build our lives, or they're not. That's the choice that he leaves God's people with as we study this book. And these opening five chapters that we're going to uh, cover this morning are like a preface to this book. That's how I would encourage you to think about them, like a preface. A preface in a book is, is a short introduction from the author. It's meant to help us understand uh, why they wrote the book. It helps us understand why they, uh, what they want us to know even before they get into the meat of it. Um, It it also, a preface in a book will typically give the readers additional context, maybe a little background. Um, It'll help the author communicate to his reader the perspective on the work that they're about to, they're about to consume. And Isaiah's call to ministry in chapter 6, and everything that follows after that, those details, that is like chapter 1 and following of the body of the book. But chapters 1 to 5 are, are like a preface. But why Isaiah even needed to write chapter 6 and following, and what the situation is on the ground as he begins, none of that is entirely clear if you start in chapter 6. And so he begins where he begins with this preface in the opening five chapters. And you say, why do you think this is just a preface or this is just introductory material? Well, there's a couple reasons, well, three reasons. One is there's no specific dating given anywhere in these first five chapters. It's just very open-ended. In other words, these are things that happened all throughout Isaiah's ministry. There's no specific anchor points that we can be 100% sure of when they happen. There's no foreign nations mentioned anywhere in the first five chapters, except for an offhand reference to the Philistines, which are always Israel's um, enemies. Not even Assyria is mentioned in this book, in the first five chapters. And then chapters one to five, 
as you look at them, have a very comprehensible and orderly structure of them with bookends in chapters 1 and 5, and then bookends again in chapter, uh, the beginning part of chapter 2 and, and chapter 4. So there's a clear discernible order and structure as well. So for all those reasons, I think it's, it makes sense to think of these first five books as a preface to the heart of the book, which will begin in chapter 6. And what he's doing here is giving us as the reader, general truths that tee up all the material that he's going to unpack in chapter 6 to 66. And what Isaiah accuses Judah of and substantiates in this preface is this. He says, you, Judah, are not what God intended you to be. That is the heart of these five chapters. You, Judah, are not what God intended you to be because God chose them to be a billboard to the nations for his glory. Just think back to the book of Exodus. Um, They were to be, Israel was to be a springboard through whom the true knowledge of God and his saving purposes would be like a beachhead disseminated throughout the whole world to the nations. And he says this in Exodus 19. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. This is God speaking. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's Covenant with Israel under Moses was for them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation through whom the true knowledge of God would disseminate to the whole world. This, This is what God intended them to be. But rather than showcase to the world how holy God is and how wise he is and just and gracious and merciful and trustworthy and fill in all the adjectives, instead of communicating that, They showed the world how unholy, how foolish, how unrighteous and merciless they were by their shameless imitation of the godless nations that surrounded them, and sometimes even outstripping those pagan nations in their wickedness. And after literally centuries of unfaithfulness and idolatry and rebellious leadership, God's mighty prophet Isaiah is going to be commissioned to confront them and to call them back to God's standard before his purifying judgment washes over them like a tsunami wave. So the way we need to think about these chapters, because this is kind of different for how we study, typically have studied a New Testament passage. We're covering large chunks. The way to think about chapters 1 to 5, we can break it down into three bite-sized portions. First, In chapter 1, verses 1 to 31, so all of chapter 1, we'll put that under the heading of Judah's comprehensive failure. Judah's comprehensive failure. Secondly, in chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 6, so chapters 2, 3, and 4, we're going to see God's purposes consummated, brought to their appointed end. God's purposes consummated. And then in chapter 5, we will see God's grace consumed. So Judah's failure, which is comprehensive, God's purposes consummated, and thirdly, God's grace consumed. But all of it, all each section, each of these bite-sized portions is underscoring that Judah 
is not what God created them to be. And this is what we need to know as we begin our study of this book. So I want to begin in chapter 1 and verse 2 where we see Judah's failure, which is comprehensive. It's a comprehensive failure. Isaiah sets the stage for his ministry by making clear that God, his people are not what God meant for them to be, no matter how, what, no matter how you slice it. They do, not, they do not measure up. They are not what God meant for them to be nationally. They are not what God meant for them to be spiritually, religiously. And they are not what God meant for them to be socially, in terms of their, their way they ordered their society. And Isaiah is like, he's like the state prosecutor here in chapter 1, making the Lord's case against his people. There is uh, so much legal terminology here in chapter 1, and we'll try and point it out as we go. If you look at verse 2 of chapter 1, he says, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. Now, this is covenant language. If you are familiar with the Old Testament and you are familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, you'll remember in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 1 that when God laid out his covenant with Israel, he called heaven and earth as witnesses to that covenant. And he is calling, Isaiah here is, is calling these, uh, the heavens and the earth as witnesses to the stand here against Israel, against Judah for their for their unfaithfulness. They were witnesses, heaven and earth were witnesses then, and they are witnesses now, testifying against them, accusing them, which in this case, of course, is the people in the southern tribe of Judah. And what is the charge, or what are the charges that um, are being brought before them? If you look at verse, uh, the last part of verse 2, he says, they have revolted against me. God's people have revolted against him. That is Again, this idea of revolt is covenant language. It has the idea of a violation of the law. And, uh, and their, their violation of God's law is not a one-off thing or a two-time thing. It's a wholesale, a wholesale departure from the law. If you look at verse 3, he says, An ox knows its master, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation... People weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. As the charges are being read here in these opening verses, God makes clear that his people have fallen below the threshold, not of other people. They've fallen behind the threshold of animals. Do you understand what he's saying? Even farm animals, he said, know their masters, who their masters are and where their food comes from, but not Judah. That's how ignorant they have become of God's word. And that ignorance has, has corrupted, that failure has, has taken over uh, Israel and nationally. You see that in verses uh, uh, 5 to 9. He says... Uh, where will you be stricken again? And as you continue in your rebellion, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. 
Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is a desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Isaiah doesn't tell us exactly what time in Judah's history this is referring to, but it could be anywhere between 735 B.C. when when Damascus and, and the northern tribes allied themselves and came against Israel, against Judah, we see that in 2 Kings 15, or all the way up to Assyria in 700, like 700 BC. We see details of that laid out in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. It doesn't really matter, though, what, what he's talking about here. The specific date isn't what's, what's important. The point is the nation that was previously prosperous and thriving and, uh, and secure was now devastated. It was a shell of its former self. They were threatened on every side. That's what that picture is in verse 8, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field. That's a temporary, that's a temporary shelter. That's not the place you live. And Proverbs 14 and verse 34 reminds us that righteousness exalts a nation, but it's clear that Judah was a failure. They were an utter failure. And God wants them to know that he is the one who stands behind their situation. Look at verse 9. He says, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom and we would be like Gomorrah. Even in the midst of a wholesale mugging, sanctioned by the Lord's sovereign hand, we see even in verse 9, whispers of mercy and grace. Do you see it there in verse 9? The same Lord of hosts who judges is the same Lord who preserves a remnant. And that is the picture. He says, unless the Lord of armies, the Lord with every potent Uh, every power and potentiality, unless that Lord had given us a remnant, a few survivors, he says we would have been wiped off the face of the earth like Sodom and Gomorrah. So the point he's making here in verses 2 to 9 is that they are a total failure nationally. But they're also a comprehensive failure religiously. Look at verse 11. But what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. That's, that's the language of um, how God views pagan worship calling it an abomination, new moons and Sabbaths and calling of assemblies. He says, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. These people are still following the law in terms of the prescriptions, offering the sacrifices, observing the, the, the various feasts and festivals on their appointed ages. In other words, they are going through the motions with their heart, but their heart of hearts have no interest in living righteously. That's what he's pointing out here in these verses. And that's why he says in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead. 
for the widow. This is a good reminder for us. The mark of the one who truly fears God, the one who truly walks by faith, is not the one who puts on the greatest show on Sunday mornings. It is the one who lives righteously. It is the one who puts sin to death by the Spirit. It is the one who stands courageously for truth and justice, showing no partiality. And it is the one who comes to the aid of the weak and the oppressed. And the people of Judah were like Pharisees, really. This is kind of the indictment. They are like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they appear beautiful, as Jesus said, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. This is the picture of of Judah. But even in the midst of their religious failure, again, in all their religious hypocrisy and sinful corruption, God extends a word of hope and a word of forgiveness in verses 18 to 20. He says, come now, let us reason together says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. These are verses that are somewhat familiar to us. To reason, as he says there, let us reason together. That doesn't mean to enter into a discussion. It's not a back and forth conversation. We, we can't read our understanding of that term into the original language. This is legal language. Again, just building off of what he's all, this courtroom scene in chapter one. God's saying, let's take this before the court. Uh, here's my offer. And the offer is, though your, skin, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be made white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey and turn back. God, he says, you're guilty, but here's what can happen. I can extend forgiveness, and that can be a complete forgiveness. That's the picture there. I can extend a complete forgiveness, but it's conditioned on a repentant heart. Now, in, depending on your translation, you may see um, a kind of concessive idea of like, though your sins are, sched- are scarlet, or though they are red like crimson. But really, it's the same word. It's if. If your sins are as scarlet, they will be made as white as snow. If they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And then he continues on. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. And if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured. There's a parallelism there that we miss in the English translation. And the point is this. He says, by the end, in verse 20, repent and eat the good things of the land. Otherwise, you will be eaten. That's, that's a play on words there in verse 20, if, or in the end of verse 19. Eat the best of the land, end of verse 20, you will be devoured. That is to be consumed, eaten by the sword. You have two choices. You can repent, and you can experience God's blessing, or you can harden your hearts, and you will be consumed. So they are a failure. Judah is a failure religiously. So they're not just a failure nationally and religiously. Thirdly, they're a, they're a failure socially. You see that in verses 21 to 23. He says, How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor do the 
nor does the widow's plea come before them. The picture here is of the social fabric of Judah has been thoroughly corrupted. Uh, they've, they've transformed themselves from being a pure bride, verse 21, to a defiled prostitute. Uh, they've reduced themselves, verse 22, from something valuable. That's the picture. Silver is valuable. And then they've transformed them and reduced themselves to being dross. Uh, a drink, uh, when it's, uh, when it's, cr- when it's uh, fermented, it, it's, it is what it is. But if you add water to it, it becomes diluted. It's worthless. That's the picture. He says, those in leadership have a sinful love of money, which is evidenced by their allying themselves with thieves and running with grifters and really anybody who's willing to pay them a bribe. So self-dealing and personal enrichment are, there, are, are corrupting their leadership from top to bottom. And because of that, justice is perverted. The less fortunate in their midst are are ignored. The leaders turn a blind eye to the many ways that the nobodies are taken advantage of in the culture. I mean, this is, this is social failure. This is corruption from top to bottom, which is a good reminder for us, I think, that rulers in, any way, in many ways provide a window into the heart of a society. Who, who those people are provides a window into the heart of a society. When, when when social values like selfless service and truth and justice and integrity, um, when those disappear, we understand that we recognize they cannot be maintained apart from spiritual commitment. There has to be a foundational reality there. And when submission to the Lord fails, think about the first half of the Ten Commandments. When that fails, commitment to the Lord fails, the second table of the law fails right after. And that's the picture you see here. Like we read about this morning, uh, they're stealing, they are um, blaspheming, they are perverting justice, and righteousness is nowhere to be found. Now, he's laid out, he's called the witnesses to bear in chapter two, excuse me, chapter one, and he's laid out the charges. But now, The sentence of judgment is pronounced in a summary way here in verses 24 to 30. Look at verse 24. He says, therefore, this is a turning point here. The Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel declares, I will be relieved of my adversaries and I will avenge myself on my foes. This is God's infinite power turned against his enemies with a righteous judgment. This is the picture. Sometimes we like to say, God, and I, and I understand why people say this, but we like to say, God loves the sinner and hates the sin. But we need to take that to the, to the prophets, because the prophets make clear that God hates the sinner and he hates the sin. They, he calls them what? My adversaries. He says, I will avenge myself, what? On my foes. So, so there's, a, there's a righteous indignation with God toward sin. Sin invites divine retribution. Vengeance, the New Testament says what? Belongs to whom? The Lord. We cannot forget that. But even in judgment, even in judgment, verses 25 and 27, there are echoes of mercy. 
Look at verse 25. He says, I will also turn my hand against you, and I will smelt away your dross as with lye, and I will remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. And after that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, and her repentant ones with righteousness. Following the judgment that he lays out here in verse 24, following that judgment, he says, Jerusalem, the faithful city that became a harlot, will be made a city of righteousness again. How is this going to happen? Verse 25, he says, I will do it. I will do it. You cannot do this for yourselves. I will do it. And of course, later on, we know who that person is that will accomplish this work of salvation. It is none other than the suffering servant that we learn about later in this book, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, God will bring justice and righteousness, verse 27, to her repentant ones. To her repentant ones. The demands of the law will be met and forgiveness extended to the repentant ones. But he says to those who continue in their rebellion and chase after other gods, Isaiah makes very clear that they will be consumed like tinder in the fire. Verse 30, for you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away or as a gardener that has no water. The strong man will become tinder, his work also a spark. Thus they shall both burn together and there will be none to quench them. This is a, this is a devastating combo here. You've got... Tinder, dry tinder, and a spark. That's a recipe for burning. So from top to bottom, we need to understand in chapter 1, from top to bottom, Judah is a comprehensive failure at this point. They are a failure nationally, they are a failure religiously, and they are a failure socially. And heaven and earth have been called to witness in this opening section of this preface, and charges have been read, and a a preliminary summary of judgment has been made and announced. Which leads us into the second kind of bite-sized portion of this in chapters 2 to 4, where we see God's purposes consummated. God's purposes consummated. We said in our overview a few weeks ago, Isaiah, Isaiah, the book itself, is about demolition and reconstruction. That's, the, that's a good way to think about the book. It's about judgment and salvation, and the order, we said, is meaningful. It's significant. You can't flip them around. It's judgment, then salvation, not the opposite. First comes judgment, then comes salvation. Both are a part of God's sovereign purposes, and both are spelled out here in chapters 2 to 4. We see judgment on the inside portion from chapter 2, verse 5 to chapter 4, verse 1. And on the bookends are his saving purposes, his future plans. In chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, and chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. We want to consider God's purposes, sovereign purposes, consummated in judgment first. And then we'll look at salvation. God's purposes are consummated in judgment beginning in chapter 2, verse 5. You might be asking yourself already, or if not now, at some point down the road, you might ask yourself, um, why is Isaiah trying, what is he trying to accomplish by this relentless confrontation? 
What is he trying to do by this constant condemnation? Here's what we need to understand as we come to this and all the prophetic books. Isaiah is being carried along by the Spirit to produce in his people an appetite for faith-filled obedience. That is the purpose of his preaching and his writing. He is trying to produce an appetite for faith-filled obedience in the hearts of God's people by proclaiming to them the absolute certainty of God's justice against their sin. He is striving to compel repentance by announcing, as he does in chapter 2, verse 10, and explaining to them the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. Because God's people in our flesh, we're proud, right? We're stubborn. We are self-sufficient. And we have domesticated God and turned him into this, this non-judgmental therapist whose sole purpose is to make us feel good about ourselves. That is not God's purpose. I think it was George, I think it was George Bernard Shaw who said, God made man in his image, and man has returned the compliment. It's true. But that is, that's not reality. God is the Holy One of Israel, we'll see in this book. And our disobedience to his word is more than just kind of stepping over the line with a few stuffy rules. It is a breaking of our relationship with him. It is a forsaking that relationship and putting a thousand lesser things in its place. And so it's no wonder that Isaiah says in chapter 2, verse 12, the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. We need to understand that God does not, nor should he share his glory with another. He does not share his glory with another. And when we forsake the Lord as Judah had and exalt ourselves and the works of our hands and put our trust in other things, God will not stand by idly forever. And when he rises up, Isaiah makes clear nothing, when God rises up, nothing will, that we have put our trust in will be there to rescue us. Look at verse 17, chapter 2. The pride of man will be humbled. The loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols of com will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. When he arises to make the earth tremble, in that day men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship they will go into the, into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. I mean, that sounds a lot like what? Tribulation, doesn't it? It sounds like God's judgment breaking loose. And the application is verse 22. Look at verse 22 of chapter 2. Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? Literally, he says, give up on man. That's what that, that, that's what that, um, that command is in verse 22. He says, give up on man. Just walk away from that. Don't put your trust in mere men and man-made stuff because God says, when I judge, I will be the only thing left standing. 
And chapter 3 makes that clear. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and from Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread, the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan, and the skillful enchanter. In other words, he says, I'm going to strip the, the floor of the forest bare. There will be nothing left. And as God judges Judah and Jerusalem, the foundations of society are going to give way. And verse 4 says, And I will then take those things away, and I will make mere lads their princes. And the capricious children will rule over them. And the people will be oppressed, and each one by another, and each by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder, the inferior against the honorable. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our ruler. And these ruins will be under your charge. In verse 7, that man will say, will protest, saying, I will not be your healer, for in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of the people. In other words, that man is saying, this is a lost cause. I want no part of it. I don't want any responsibility over this people. And why would God do this? Verse 8, chapter 3, For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord to rebel against his glorious presence. The expression of their faces bear witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. In other words, judgment is coming because they are flaunting their sin and their rebellion against the Lord. Sins of speech, which we don't think are that bad, do we? And sins of behavior, of conduct. This is high-handed sin in verse 9. It is, a, it is boasting in their wickedness, shamelessly, shamelessly boasting in their wickedness. And they are also, along with their sins of speech and their wicked conduct, he says they, have, um, they are devouring the weak and the vulnerable. Look at verse 14. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes. It is you who have devoured the vineyard, which is a metaphor to speak of the people, the plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of armies, Lord God of hosts. In other words, there is, there is this wholesale departure and corruption and wickedness in there. The, to uh, plunder has the idea of take forcibly, is to exploit and just take by force that which belongs to the weak and the vulnerable. But it's not just uh, men who flaunt their sin and enrich themselves at the expense of the vulnerable. The women are doing that in, in Judah as well. And he addresses them specifically in verses 16 to verse 26. God has a word of condemnation for them as well. And he says in here, if you look at those verses, if you've read them, I encourage you to read through these chapters before we come together on Sundays. He, he explains all the things that they wore, the dangling earrings and the bracelets and the veils and the headdresses and the tunics. And it's just, it's just kind of ostentatious wealth. He says all that's going to be stripped away. Uh, and in its place, he says, um, instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. 
Instead of fine clothes, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, he says branding. This is the captivity. This is, this is them being led away like slaves. In other words, what they are exulting in, will be, they'll be brought to shame. This is, the, this is the, the picture. God's purpose is consummated in judgment. This is what it will look like. But all God's impulses are not judgment. They are not all humiliation. The judgment and the humiliation are meant to purify and ultimately to accomplish God's saving purposes. And we cannot miss that. The conviction of sin that Isaiah's oracles of judgment are meant to provoke are designed to move his hearers to throw themselves on God's mercy before it's too late. He wants them to look to the grace of God so that God would accomplish the salvation that he has promised to his people. And we get a short preview of that in the beginning of chart, part of chapter 2 and the beginning part of chapter 4. Uh, look, at what, look at chapter 2, verse 2. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the Lord, the house of the Lord, will be established as the chief of the mountains and be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream into it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and he will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their, their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. You said, I've seen that before. Where have I seen that? Micah. It's almost a verbatim, uh, uh, word for word, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Most likely, Isaiah wrote what he wrote, and Micah included that. But it's, no one can be, can't be dogmatic as to who, who may be borrowed from whom. But the picture here is one of um, Jerusalem exalted as the capital of the globe. All the nations stream into it and learn God's law. The, the picture here in verses 2 to 4 is one in which the whole earth is like Eden. This is the kingdom fallen, suddenly restored to its original glory. And the prince of peace will reign and the righteousness will fill the whole earth. Look at chapter 4 and verse 3. It will come about that he who is left in Zion remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. This is such a stark contrast to what Judah was. It will be holiness across the board in every corner, every nook and cranny. When will this happen? Verse 4, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. And then he says, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be a canopy, and there will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day, and a refuge and protection from the storm in the rain. The imagery here is rich. The cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night reminds us of what? Reminds us of the Exodus. Reminds us of God's care for his people in the wilderness. 
The picture is one of protection. It is one of safety. It is one of communion. In other words, when God brings salvation to his people, it will be a new Exodus experience in a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. And it's worth noting in verse 5 that it says the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion this cloud and so forth. That verb to create in verse 5 is a word reserved in the scriptures for God when, he, when God is the subject. God is the one who creates. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And what we see in Isaiah here is that he, God is the one who recreates the new heavens and the new earth. His words here are very, very specific, and they are meant to draw our gaze back to recognize that this is God's work. This is the salvation that God will accomplish by his grace. Which leads us to the third bite-sized portion, which is chapter 5. We see God's grace consumed, used up, exhausted. Isaiah ends this preface, these opening chapters, that, that kind of set up the main body of the book. He actually ends them with a parable in verses 1 to 7. We saw back in chapter 1, God's grace toward the undeserving as Isaiah spoke about how the Lord was going to restore them. The Lord was going to make them whole. We saw in chapters 2 and 4, again, we see where sin abounds. Isaiah wants us to understand that grace abounds all the more. So what does it look like when God's grace is exhausted? What does it look like when God's grace is consumed? And chapter 5 is going to It's going to help us understand that in the form of a parable. Look at verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a flower, excuse me, a tower in the middle of it. He also hewed out a wine vat in it, but he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no more on it. The, the picture here uh, is, of course, uh, uh, one of desolation. And... Um, what's he talking about? He gives us the, that's the parable, but the interpretation is in verse seven. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, who's that? He says, it's the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his delightful plant. He says, thus he, God, look for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, cry, a cry of distress. Um, What stands out here in chapter 5, is that God has done a total work. He said, I did everything. I did everything I could possibly do. He did a total work, but all he got in return was a total loss. Right? Isn't that what he says in verse 4? What, 
more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? The only thing left to do is to execute justice. And what he does then in verses 8 to 23 is, um, is to explain what this justice is going to look like through oracles of judgment, six of them. And it's not just what is coming, but he indicts them again for their... And this is not an unjust judgment. And he lays out all their, again, rebellion. In verses 8 to 11, he talks about how they have been consumed with insatiable greed. In verses 12 to 17, he lays out their disregard for God's word and his works. In verses 18 and 19, he points out their defiance against the Lord. In verse 20, their upside-down morality. Good is called evil, evil is called good. In verse 21, he points out their pride. They're wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. In verses 22 and 23, again, he comes back to this issue of denying justice to those who are needy. So, how will God execute his judgment? How, how will God ex- execute this justice that he has promised by way of parable and by indictment? Well, we get that answer in verses 24 to 30. He says, um, I'm going to bring a foreign nation and they're going to consume you and take you out of the land. Look at verse 26. Um, He will also lift up a standard to the distant nation and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth. And behold, it will come with speed, swiftly. No one in it is weary or stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps, nor is the belt at its waist undone, nor its sandal strap broken. In other words, nothing's out of place. This is an army that is finely tuned. There's not a slip-up, nothing. It's, it is, it is a, uh, almost a, um, beyond belief that this could happen. And he says, uh, its arrows are sharp, all its bows are bent. The hoofs of its horses seem like flint, and its chariot wheels like the whirlwind. Back then, they didn't shoe horses they just had the normal kind of cuticle nail thing. So when it, horses were limited when they ran across rough terrain. It, would, it could damage their hoofs, right? He says their hoofs are like flint. They don't, they don't even, um, they're not affected at all. And its chariot wheels are like a whirlwind. It is like, its roaring is like a lioness and its roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey and carries it off with no one to deliver it, and it will growl over it in that day like the roaring of the sea. This, of course, is alluding to what Assyria would do. He doesn't name them here, but they're in view. He says they're going to come swiftly. They're going to come powerfully. The image of verse 27 is is one of um, just effective, inexpressible disaster is coming their way. It's about to crash down over Judah. And so it's absolutely no surprise that chapter 5 ends the way it does. With Judah being carried off like a wild, by a wild animal. You say, I thought God's grace was inexhaustible. Well, ultimately it is. But to borrow the words of Paul, do you think, the light, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness? and tolerance, 
and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Galatians 6 verse 7 reminds us, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, thus he will reap. In Judah, what Isaiah makes clear in these opening chapters, Judah had sown to the flesh, and that faithless generation reaped judgment and shame and corruption. They were not what God meant for them to be. And there wasn't even a hint of turning back. Like Proverbs 29 says, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. And that is what happened, is going to happen to Judah. And we'll see how that unfolds in the coming chapters. And chapter 5 ends with the lights going out. Look at verse 30. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light, he says, is darkened by its clouds. There's no flickers of light like we see in chapter 1 or chapter 2 or chapter 3 or chapter 4. None of it. It's just judgment. Judgment. It appears in chapter 5 like God is closing up shop. And this preface concludes with a somber message for us. It's one we need to hear. The Holy One of Israel not only exposes sin, but he deals justly with sin. But as Isaiah begins the opening chapter of this book, the book in chapter, our chapter 6, verse 1, we're reminded of an anonymous poet who wrote, The darkest hour is just before the dawn. The tired heart lays down its heavy load, then takes a deep breath and quietly moves on to a new day that slowly begins to unfold. So let us not dwell on the darkness of the night, but I the dawn that's breaking, for in the first light of a new day's sight lies the promise of a new beginning in the making. And that's exactly what chapter 6 will begin to show us next week. In chapter 6 and following through chapter 12 especially, lies the promise of a new beginning. Isaiah is going to introduce us to this Davidic king, Emmanuel, God with us. And it makes me think of Matthew 4 and verse 14, when Jesus' ministry was just getting started and he moved up into the region of Galilee. Matthew tells us that this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and of shadow of death, upon them light dawned. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And we, as God's new covenant people, need not dwell in the darkness of night, but we look to the dawn that is breaking. And that is the point. Our primary contribution as believers in this world ought to be our holiness. That is our contribution. As Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so I think as we read these chapters and we, we see God's hatred of sin, his righteous judgment, 
We have to understand that an unholy people who take the name of God upon their lips, if they do that and they are not what they, God meant for them to be, he will extinguish that lamp. And, there, and the question that God asks in Isaiah chapter four, 5 and verse 4 is a fitting one. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? And we, on this side of the cross, understand that answer to that question is even greater than what they understood. God has sent his only son to live and to die and to rise again in our place. God has given us his word. God has given us as his church the spirit which seals us and allows us to understand those things and to live obediently. He has laid up for us a future inheritance that Peter says is imperishable undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. What more can God do for us that he has not done? And that, that is how we understand this. As we go through this book, we need to understand that there's, we're going to look at things from three perspectives. I mentioned this to the men yesterday. There's they and them and what was happening in that time. Then there's the dividing line of human history, which is the cross. And then there is this side of the cross and into eternity. And we're going to move back and forth, and as Isaiah does, between those three realities. Every week, we're going to be seeing some aspect of those things, most likely. And we understand that that's, we can't, you know, we're not Judah, we're not Jerusalem, we're not under the law, but the who God is, that never changes. And who man is, that never changes. And who Christ is, that never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if he has done all that for us, how can we not go and bear fruit? Right? This is John 15. He says, everyone who bears fruit, he prunes, and he brings forth more fruit. And everyone that does not bring forth fruit, what does he do? He throws it into the fire. So we have to understand that God is a righteous God. He judges sin. He vindicates his holiness but he's also a compassionate God and a merciful God. And all that judgment is meant to draw our hearts to him. That's why Jonah preached. He went and he preached. Why? Reluctantly, so that the people would repent and believe. And that's exactly what they did. And that generation was saved. We'll pick up chapter 6. Read chapter 6 for next Sunday because that's what we're going to look at. Isaiah's commission and calling to ministry, what we will call chapter one of his book. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our hearts to the Lord's table, we're reminded that you have done this work for us. You have accomplished this work. And because of that, we gather around your table to celebrate um, what you have done. It, it is finished. Help us to realize that. Help us to walk as a holy people. Now, this table reminds us what we are, what it costs us, what it costs you, excuse me, to bring us to yourself. And so as we partake of these elements, which point to the greater spiritual realities of your body and blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, Lord, help us to have a somber heart. Help us to take sin seriously. Help us, help us to be a holy people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, 
Visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.